I guess most of us at some point have heard the phrase about being worth your weight in gold. You know, that person's so precious, they're worth their weight in gold. They can do amazing things. Well, today, we're thinking of being worth our weight in silver, right? Because that's roughly what the weight of a talent was. It was about the weight of a person. We, we tend to have a, a, a better diet than 2,000 years ago, or at least one that uh, causes us to be a little bigger and heavier than those of the first century. So, so maybe for all of us, um, maybe we weigh a bit more than a talent now. But that was the case back then. Um, so we can't directly apply that method. But if we are basing it on the size of someone back then, probably in today's cost of silver, we're, we're talking about something like £30,000. Maybe more. £30,000 of silver. If you were called to have stewardship of that sum, if somebody came to you and gave you that, or maybe even double that, or maybe even five times that, over 150,000. That would be some amount of money to look after. Oh, were that the case? You know, for most of us, that would be an incredibly large amount of money. But the master entrusts it to the servants believing that they are capable of doing that. They get that talent and they are to look after it. He knows them. He knows them well. God knows us well. And knows what we can be trusted with and trusts us appropriately. The money is not simply doled out. Each gets assigned that talent appropriate to what they can do. And then the master returns. And then the master returns. And two of the servants have doubled the amount. Wow. You know, 100%. We don't know what time span has passed, but they've doubled it. Five becomes ten. Two becomes four. But the third servant had simply buried it and dug it up again. And the master is unimpressed. He gets his money back. You know, he's not lost it. But it could have been so much more. It was invested with that servant. But that servant doesn't really do much with it. To have dug a hole and buried the talent of silver... That took effort in itself. 
the talent of silver must have been about half the size of the box that I was holding earlier, right? You have to dig a sizable hole to bury that, to hide it. It takes time, it takes energy, it takes a shovel. And you don't want anybody else to see it, so you need to plan carefully how you're doing it. Otherwise, somebody else can come along and nick it. That's the intention of burying it. Nobody else sees it. It protects it. So thought, planning, energy. And then he just digs it up again. It would probably have taken less effort if he had actually put it on deposit. If he'd nipped round to the bankers and said, here you go. Of course, these days it's hard to find a bank that will take cash across the counter. But he might have found somebody that he could have deposited it with and, and got a return. But the situation could have been much worse. The financial world we live in is quite different from the first century. In those days, inflation wasn't much of an issue. For us, despite it was announced this week that inflation is falling, it's still causing prices to rise. It's still increasing pain for many, many households. And so over time, money in the bank or in the pay packet effectively devalues. If you'd had a thousand pounds that you buried in your garden at the millennium and then dug it up today, it would still be a thousand pounds, but what you can buy with it would only be half as much. Prices have doubled in that time. Yet again, though, if it was not cash buried in 2000, but silver, it would have increased sixfold. So it would have three times the purchase ability of what was buried. Perhaps the master would have been happy with that situation if that had been the case back in the day. But it wasn't. The talent was buried and it was dug up. And it was still just a talent that hadn't been used in the meantime. And so the servant who'd simply buried the money gets seriously berated. He'd been assessed as having the ability to exercise good stewardship. There were things that he could do that he didn't do. He is not considered a good and faithful servant like the other ones, but a useless one. He's thrown out, no longer in care of the master no longer having that role. And this challenges us to the times that we could serve, that we could act in a way that sees the growth of the kingdom, 
but we fail to. He's like the foolish virgins in last week's parable. In his waiting, he is found wanting. The time before the Lord's return is not to be passive, but we must do as God knows we are able to further his purpose. We worship, but there's more to being God's people, more to being his servant than simply being there. There is, however, an alternative interpretation of the parable. It's one that is increasingly being spoken. We generally see the master as being Jesus and the, the servant that buries the sizable sum rather than put it on deposit as being foolish or wicked or, um, you know, misguided in their judgment. But what if that is the wrong reading? And the parable concerns how we are to have a kingdom life in a corrupt world. I think I'm right in saying that this um, liberation theology understanding of the passage was first put forward by uh, William Herzog, uh, uh, Her- sorry, William Herzog in 1994, he offered the concept that the third servant actually does what's right. What? Yeah, he does what's right. He speaks truth to power by proclaiming to the master, you reap what you don't sow and gather where you have not scattered. He challenges unjust practice. He proclaims that the master in this story is a thief. His punishment is being thrown out into the darkness. That's the earthly fate of so many who challenge unjust power, such as Oscar Romero, the uh, San Salvadorian archbishop who spoke of injustice in his country and so was assassinated in 1980 while he was celebrating Mass. By burying the money and returning it fully, the third servant has not stolen it, but nor has he engaged in the exploitation of workers that the other two servants may have to yield a 100% return on their investments. The argument goes... The excessive profit comes through charging considerably more than what it costs to produce an item or to operate a business. So did they pay their staff a fair wage? For example, clothing produced in a Far East sweatshop at discount price but sold to us as a designer item with considerable markup. Is that right? Or the power of some buyers to hold prices low by having an effective monopoly and not offering a fair price to manufacturers or to farmers. Farmers Weekly reported yet again in September this year that the farm gate price for milk 
is often 5 to 10 pence a litre less than the cost of production. That's unjust, isn't it? It's to give us cheap milk. It's to give the shops profit. But it's unjust. We must be aware that with the money we have at our disposal, we have purchasing power that needs to be used ethically for the benefit of the kingdom, setting the captives free rather than enslaving them. However, while I think we have a lot to learn from this liberation angle, and the arguments are valid and in line with the gospel, I'm not actually convinced that is how Jesus intended the passage to be heard. Following so closely on from the parable that we had last week, which featured the return of the bridegroom, and to then have a passage where the returner is a villain rather than a hero, just doesn't make much sense. Particularly as continuing the chapter gives us the passage Alan and Jute had two weeks ago. Again, the return of the Son of Man and his judgment on how we have lived. So the traditional reading can stand provided, provided, we continue to think of what is just and fair. And provided we don't fool ourselves into thinking of the talents as talents in the way that we normally employ that word. For that usage only came about 600 years ago or so. And in the passage, the talent is loaned to the servant. It's something that can be returned. Whereas when we think of a talent in our lives, it is a more permanent ability. The master, returning in today's reading, must rightly challenge us in our stewardship. Do we use our ability to grow the kingdom or do we bury that opportunity do we bury the opportunities that come our way and simply maintain the status quo we say as long as things are the same everything's all right we might do that individually there might be times we do that as a church But God is a transformational God that brings change into the world, that brings change into our lives. We might not like that word change, but he is a God that moves us forward and wants us to move forward in the growth of the kingdom and to move forward in our relationship with him. We need to be actively awaiting the return of Jesus by seeking our personal transformation 
seeking our faith to grow, seeking change in the community, the places where we live and serve, seeking our workplaces, our places of learning, the places that we encounter people, to be changed to places of God's love, where the kingdom grows each day. In this way, when we serve, we will be surely worth more than our weight in silver or gold. Amen.